Let's get rolling. We are going to finish up the book of Esther today, but I want to just kind of briefly overview what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Esther's a, a very powerful book that often gets overlooked. It's read every single year by the Jews at the Feast of Purim, which we'll talk about a little bit today. Uh, but remember, what's interesting about the book of Esther is it never mentions God. It doesn't mention anything. It never shows worship to God. It never shows any of that kind of stuff. It shows the devotion of the Jewish people, certainly, but never mentions God, which there's a lot of arguments like, oh, this shouldn't be canonical if, it's, if, it's, uh, if it certainly doesn't even have the name of God somewhere in it. The name Esther means something hidden. Kind of a sign that we need to dig a little bit deeper because God's hand is all over this thing. There's no denying that, and you're going to see that today. But, but remember where we left off. We're during the time of the exile, King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus is how it says, Xerxes is the Greek name uh, that we're familiar with, but uh, is, is in power. And he gets rid of his queen Vashti because during this 180-day party, really the seven-day party that followed the 180-day party, she would not do what the king told her to do. He wanted her to come in and parade around, and she didn't want to do that, understandably so. And so he decides he's going to get rid of her, and they go on this long search to try to find the next queen. So they bring in all the young and beautiful women from all around the, you know, remember, it's, this is the, the Persian kingdom. I mean, it's huge. It, it spans a great deal of distance. So they bring all these women in, and they have a 12-month period of which they get ready. They beautify themselves, they purify themselves, and whatever else went on. It seems a little excessive to me, but whatever. And so, long story short, Esther wins the challenge. She's in. She finds favor in the eyes of the king. In fact, as it says everywhere, she finds favor in the eyes of every person she meets, which is interesting, because that's not an easy thing to do. She's not one of them. She's not a Mede. She's not a Persian. She's, she's a Jew. But she, her cousin Mordecai, who was basically her father, he took her in after her parents were killed, Told her, said, you need to keep that quiet. Don't tell them that you're Jewish. Just go in there and do your thing. King chooses her. She becomes the queen. And life is good for the most part. But then Haman gets... Remember after there was a, an assassination plot against the king, which Mordecai catches wind of, he goes to Esther. Esther tells the king. They look into it. Sure enough, it's found out that it's true. Now, under most of the time, the king is going to promote that individual and lavish them with gifts and all of these other things. But that doesn't happen with Mordecai. The next thing you read is that Haman gets raised up, that he is now basically the number two in the kingdom. All of these promotions, all of these awards are given to him for some reason, never tells us why, other than there's an undergirding story that takes place here and that's going on. And so... As they're doing this, Haman has a run-in with Mordecai because the king made a decree that everybody who sees Haman should bow down to him. Not necessarily worship him as a god, but pay homage to the guy, respect him. Well, Mordecai doesn't want any part to do with that. And if you recall, it, it, it has a lot to do with the, the things that go back clear into the Old Testament. That Haman came from the Amalekites and King Agag, who Saul was supposed to execute as judgment because the Amalekites were the ones that attacked the Israelites as they were fleeing Egypt. Did I lose anybody yet? Are y'all still with me? Okay. I know it's a lot of history. You're like, oh, goody. But that's what happened. And so he was supposed to kill King Agag. Haman came. He was an Agagite, which is from that line. And so you have the Israelites against the enemies of God. And so the enemy of God here is putting out a decree that we need to destroy these people, this group, this, these certain individuals. Doesn't tell the king who, but says we need to destroy them. The king hands him his signet ring, which is his authority, and says, hey, do whatever you want. And what do they start doing after that? They start partying. Right? That's what they do good. And so the, uh, Mordecai, of course, is freaking out. He goes to Esther and he says, you need to go and talk to the king because Haman is going to have us killed. It's in a one-year span. It's at the, the, the 
last month of the year. Our December, for them it wasn't their December, but it was the last month of the year. And so she goes to the king, which you don't do, right? You are summoned by the king. You don't just walk in there. She risks her life, and she says, you know what? If I die, I die. I've got to do what's right here. So she goes to the king. King brings her in and says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What are the desires of your heart? And what does she say? You know what we would have said? Like, hey, can you back off a little bit? You know, maybe we want to stick around for a while. She says, hey, I threw a party for you and Haman. You want to come? Of course, they go. And where we left off was Haman had gone home, He'd had another run-in with Mordecai. Mordecai didn't stand before him even after all this. It just infuriates him. But he goes home, invites all his friends over, his wife's there, and begins bragging about all the things that he had, his wealth, his children, which was the sign of manhood in, this, in the Near Eastern area here, uh, all the things that he had been promoted to, the people that were under him, and how even he got invited by the queen to a party just for he and the king. And life is good, but he can't deal with this Mordecai. And so his wife suggested, hey, here's what you do. Build a gallow, essentially 75 feet high, and go to the king tomorrow and tell him, hey, we need to hang Mordecai on this. Remember, the gallow is this thing. It, it essentially, it pierced them, and they hung them up in the air from it. It was the early days of the crucifixion. And so he has this thing built. He loves the idea. This is great. That's where we left off. Okay? What you're about to see is a complete reversal of everything that had taken place. Remember, his whole mission in life is to wipe out the Jewish people the certain people, all right? So we're going to jump into Esther chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, That night the king could not sleep. This is right after that party. So one was commanded to bring the book of, of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Abiknana and Teresh, those were the two doorkeepers that were there, to the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, I guess I didn't have to say that, it says it itself, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So, now, again, put yourself in this situation. The king just finished a lavish party put on by the queen. It was called the party of wine. They were drinking, right? It was what they were good at. And so they were, I mean, surely this guy was merry at heart, right? I mean, he, is, he, he should be, have no problem sleeping here, but yet he cannot sleep. Something is keeping him awake. And so what do they do? He requests that the book of Chronicles, not the one that's in our Bible, but essentially, it may say the book of Annals in your Bible, all Near Eastern kings kept a record of the events and the things that went on and all of this stuff. This was very common practice. You see it all throughout the Old Testament of the kings and stuff like that. But apparently, he wanted these things come and read to him, and they're going to read to him all night. Now, if you're thinking, wouldn't that put a guy to sleep? Here's what you do. If you ever have a night you can't sleep, put on C-SPAN. That's essentially the same thing that's going on here, right? Within 10 minutes you're out. It's, it's, not, it's not complicated. And so that's what's going on, is that he wants to, I mean, this is it's like reading the Senate debates amongst, between the, the, the Republicans and the Democrats, right? Oh, that's exciting reading. If anything will put you to sleep, that will put you to sleep. And so he realizes in this moment, after they brought these in, apparently being read all night long, that what had taken place, Mordecai was never rewarded. He was the one that was responsible for blowing the whistle on the assassination plot that was going on. And nothing had been done for him. And so as I said before, typically 
They would promote the guy. They would just lavish him with gifts, finances, all this stuff. They'd just give him gold and silver and anything else they could think of. And this was commonplace, especially for Xerxes, Ahasuerus, whatever you want to say, as long as you know who I'm talking about. Because in, in some of the ancient writings, there was a guy named Xenagoras. I don't know if I'm saying that, X-E-N-A-G-O-R-A-S. But Xerxes had a brother, and he rescued him because he was about to die. And so to honor him and to reward him for what he had done for his brother, he promotes him to the governor of Cilicia. And that position does not come without notoriety and without wealth because they collected the taxes. Okay, So this thing should have happened. But after that event took place, we don't see Mordecai promoted. We see Haman promoted. Nothing happened for Mordecai. And so the king is shocked by this, and he wants to make it right, because this is outside of standard protocol, but certainly the character of Xerxes. And so, based on the events that are about to take place, there is no doubt that the hand of God is upon them. Now watch what happens. Verse 6, so Haman came in, and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor? more than me. And Haman answered to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on the horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Do you see the man's ego here? I mean, he puts Trump to shame, and that's saying something, y'all. I mean, good Lord, because the king asked the question, what should we do? Like, we need to honor somebody. What do you think, Haman? What should we do? So he immediately turns it on to himself. Hey, it's all about me. Who, who else could he want to do? And he, so he, he goes through all these different things that he wants for himself. That a robe that the king has worn be given to him. And that he rides on the king's horse and he's paraded through town by one of these noble princes. The most trusted. The noble prince. Now think about to chapter 5, we're in chapter 6. At the end of chapter 5, he's talking about all these things, right? He's bragging, look at all these great things I have. I mean, his ego is gigantic. He could not fit in this room. It's too big, right? Too much. Now, my favorite verse, or at least one of my favorite verses, is the very next verse, verse 10. Then king, the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. I love this, right? Like, you've, it, it, it's, take yourself back to high school. Everybody had that one guy that was super arrogant, great at everything. All you had to do was ask him and he'd tell you about it. And then he would lose like, there was something we just enjoyed about that, right? Just being, like, the world is correcting itself right there when they get smacked down. And so, I mean, Haman is now faced with the reality that the king wasn't talking about him. So he laid out, he said, you're most noble prince. So we know he's, he's up there. But yeah, he, he said, this is his mortal enemy. He said, take it to Mordecai. We need to reward him. Now, he, he's obviously aware of him being a Jew. Before, we weren't 100% sure, but now at least he knows. So... What we don't see here is that he has no idea who the certain people that Haman was talking about earlier. But, he, because he's completely out of touch with his kingdom, but what, I mean, just, just imagine Haman, again, his hatred for Mordecai. Every time he saw the guy, he was enraged. Now look at verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse 
arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Does not only does Mordecai get the honor that was deserved to him, but his enemy, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is the one who has to make sure he gets it. I love this. It's just awesome. I, I, just, I just love it. But you need to put this back into perspective because the robe of the king was the robe of the king. And when it was put on somebody, that was a huge deal. And riding the king's horse, and you see that in, in First and Second Samuel at different parts. And David, you know, put him on the king's horse and things. I mean, this is a sign of extreme pleasure by the king. They are immediately elevated to this position uh, in the kingdom because of this. But my favorite part is Haman is the one that has to do this. Let's go on to verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. It just keeps getting better, right? So he leads him by horseback through the city. He's like, this is, thou, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, this Mordecai. He's having to tell everybody this. And what does he do? He runs back home with this tail between his legs, right? That covering their head is this sign of extreme embarrassment. I mean, not just, he's lost his honor right? His mortal enemy, he's embarrassed, he's ashamed, he's dejected, all of these things. This is his mortal enemy. And so what does he do? He runs home and he tells his friends of everything that just happened and his wife. This is the antithesis to chapter five. Pride comes before a fall, right? Here we are. Boy, has he fallen. I mean, it's just such a huge contrast. But Zeresh makes an odd statement here that said, if he's of Jewish descent, you will fall against him. This is kind of prophetic in a sense. Because with everything that happened just, you know, in the, to poor Haman, you know, in this moment, he's down, he's, he's destitute, he's, he's, he's probably crying, you know, I'm sure he is, his wife's trying to console him, and he's probably sobbing, he's the kid that always got the uh, participation trophy and doesn't know how to handle rejection and a loss, but just as he's dealing with all of this and this embarrassment, what happens next? The king's servants say, hey, you got a party to go to, let's go. This is the party he was bragging about just the day before, but now he has to go back. And so do you think he feels like partying? No, probably not. He doesn't want to be seen. He's not in the mood for any of this. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition? Queen Esther, it shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So you see the setup here. Because he's asked her a couple different times, What is it you want? Hey, just come to this party. So she finally lays it out there. What you want? I want to save my people. That's what I want. She says that if we've been sold into slavery, that would have been one thing. But, but, I mean, they want our destruction. And notice how she says the destroyed, killed, 
and annihilated. Those are very specific words. In fact, we've got to go back to Esther 3 to see this in verse 13. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's province to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. We don't have to finish the rest of that. That was the decree that Haman had made that had been spread out throughout the entire kingdom. She used the very words that he had used in his edict against him here with the king. And the only reason she's in this position is because she found favor in the eyes of the king. She knew exactly what she was doing. This was all a big setup. And so she is using this against Haman. Let's look at verse 5. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. It just keeps getting better. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Har Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows! Fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. The queen lays it out. He, he's shocked. This shows you he has no idea what had been going on in his kingdom. Because when he handed him that ring, that signet ring, he gave him a free-for-all. It's a blank check. How much you need, when you need it, I've already signed it, you go do it. So he had the authority, he could have decreed anything he wanted, and probably did. This is the only one written about, but I'm sure, given his ego, he took advantage of that opportunity, because the king has absolutely no idea. He's like, who would do this, and where are they at? And queen says, this guy sitting next to you. Now, again, imagine the look on Haman's face. Right? Can you imagine? As all of this is unfolding, because the day before, the world was his oyster. He's, his life is good. Here's all my pearls. Look at me. And everything is happening quickly. Now, the king is mad, obviously. He's ticked off. He gets up. He goes to the palace garden. Remember, that is their oasis. These gardens were massive. They would have exotic plants and animals. They go to get away and to deal with it. But he's probably trying to think, what am I going to do with Haman? Because remember, he's his right-hand man. He had trusted him. He has been betrayed by Haman, and he didn't even know it. And this all happened under his watch. It does not look good for the king. And so Haman, in this meantime, is begging Esther for his life. Please speak to the king. Please let them, please say something for our behalf. She's not going to do it. The king gets back, and his servant happens to notice, hey, there's this gallows outside. It's 50, or 75 feet high, 50 cubits, foot and a half, 75 feet high. And the king looked at that and said, all right, let's hang Haman on it. It's the one that Haman had had built for Mordecai. And then look at the reversal. It's all coincidence, right? I literally read a commentary that was talking about the luck of Esther. Can you believe that? Come on. So Haman gets hung on it. But this is just getting started. I mean, this, this is just the beginning. Now the enemy's gone. But the edict still exists. It's got to be dealt with. So we're going to read through all of chapter 8. Okay? So bear with me. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So taking over everything. 
And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So now he's letting, she's letting the cat out of the bag. Okay, I said before that it was possibly because he got promoted and was moved up, that possibly there was something going on. But here we see that now he knows for sure. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So now the authority has been given to the people of God. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahazur said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Pause there for a minute. Haman did the same thing, right? It's being revoked. So the king's scribe were called at that time in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan, the 23rd day. And it is written, according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahazur, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, to plunder their possessions. On one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on the royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel, which is where they were. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. And the Jews had light in their gladness, joy and honor. In every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Just because Haman was gone, the edict still exists, and the king made a statement. It can't be reversed when the king's signet ring. Did he reverse that directly? No. But he made an edict that the Jews could protect themselves and defend themselves. And much they did in chapter 9, which we're not going to read all, but you will see that. Read that in your own time. You watch everything come forward. When that day arrived, the 13th of Adar, it was the last month of the year, when that day arrived, they were able to defend themselves and destroy all the people that came against them. And this is all because Mordecai had the signature. He said, you write the edict 
He has the authority of the king. He becomes the second in command. He takes the position of Haman. And so they're, in a sense, reversing everything that's done. And Mordecai now goes around in these royal garments. And it says that many became Jews. And some argue about that. Oh, did they just become soft to the Jews? No. And the Septuagint says they became circumcised. That means that these people that were not of God, because of the hand of God, became proselyte Jews. They came into the, the nation that God had set aside. In other words, when you allow God to do the things in His time and His way, and you play your part, that the fruit will bear itself. Okay? The hand of God is upon these people. And another thing happens is a feast is declared in chapter 9. It's called the Feast of Purim. Now, this is not one of the seven that are laid out by God. There's two that they celebrate outside of that that are very important to understand. One is Hanukkah, and this one is the Feast of Purim. Now, think about that word for a minute. The Feast of Purim. And we're going to talk about that. When we finish this up here in a couple of weeks, we're going to go into the feast, and we will talk about this more in depth. But it's always celebrated the 14th and 15th of Adar. It's two days. Now, what was the 13th of Adar? It was the day that the Jews were to be annihilated, destroyed, their utter destruction. And on the 14th, what are they saying to the world? We're still here. That's why they do it. Remember that it says they cast pure, which is the Babylonian word for lots. Right? The I am ending in Hebrew always pluralized. It's the Feast of Lots. That's what Haman used to determine what day. It was this rolling of, essentially rolling of dice. I'll talk about it more when we get there, but essentially this rolling of dice. And this is how they try to figure out what we should do things. It's used all throughout Scripture. It's used in the New Testament in the first chapter of Acts when they want to determine who is the 12th disciple. Now that Judas is gone, they cast lots. You see it all throughout. So this was a common practice, not just with Israel, but with all nations to try and figure out what God wanted them to do. But anyway, this is a celebration of what was supposed to have been done and wasn't because of the hand of God. There's no other way around this. A king does not just change his mind. Okay? Now let's look at chapter 10 real quick, and then we're going to land this. Chapter 10, verse 1, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of the Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Mordecai never wavered. Go back. Queen Vashti, who was a Persian, she was disposed so that Esther, who was Jewish, could become queen and would ultimately save her people. Haman, who was once exalted, is brought low, and Mordecai, one of the Jews, once hated was exalted and honored. You see, again, you see this reversal going on. A decree that would have wiped out the Jews was overruled by one which led to the destruction of nearly 76,000 enemies of the people of God. Read chapter 9. It talks about all of this stuff. Now think about this for a moment because this whole sequence of events takes place about 20 years prior to Ezra. Okay? You see Mordecai lived. Remember, Mordecai never lost faith. He goes to Esther and he says, you need to go talk to the king. Because don't think for a minute your life will be spared in this. But even if you don't, God will raise something up. Why? Because God promised no matter what, there would be a remnant of Israel. And because of that remnant, you and I are here today. It's from that remnant that Jesus came. Okay? Now, 
this all goes back. I'm going to write down these names here. Bear with me for just a moment. I'm writing Xerxes because it's easier to spell. You got Xerxes. You got Esther. You got Haman. And you got Mordecai. I know you can't read my terrible handwriting. There are four characters in this book. It's a short book. Ruth and Esther always get studied together. Shouldn't be that way. I mean, it's okay, but the only reason they get studied together is because they're named after women. These books, both of these books get studied in universities all across the country because of their literary stuff, their literature. They're, they're just well-written, and they love that. But these four characters are at the heart of this book. And so we're going to go into Nehemiah next, so bear with me because I'm going to talk about that just for a moment. But this whole event is sandwiched between chapter 7 and chapter 8 in the book of Ezra. In the very beginning, Cyrus is raised up by God to send Zerubbabel and 50,000 people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple so that the people of God could worship God in the way that God had commanded them to worship Him. Through the temple, through the sacrifices, all of that. They found favor in the eyes of the king simply because God, through the prophet Isaiah, 150 years prior to Cyrus being born, wrote that Cyrus would be the one who would rebuild the temple. So he had a soft spot towards these people. He sends them back. Then you get into this story of Esther where once again the Jews are up to be wiped out. This happens all throughout history, did not stop when the cannon was closed, it's continued today. And if the Palestinians had their way, it would happen right now. But the hand of God is still upon them. But the bottom line here is Ezra, after this happens, Ezra is going to, or excuse me, Ez, yes, Ezra. Ezra is given permission to go back to be the service of the temple. The temple is built. They go back, he takes about 2,000 people with him. Why do they have a, a soft spot in their heart? Because the son of Xerxes is now the king. This happens 20 years prior. We're not talking that far. This wasn't hundreds of years. This is a few years. And the Mordecai and all these people who laid the groundwork has now allowed the favor of God to really go forward with the next king. And so he's going to take them. And then we're going to get to Nehemiah, who is going to build the wall. I love saying that. It's just fun. I don't know why. Anyway, all of this is going on. But what does that have to do with us? Where do we find Christ in all of this? Well, for one thing, you've got the king, okay? You've got a king, he's a, he's a pagan king. God's used pagan, pagan kings all throughout history. Nebuchadnezzar was one. You could argue. I don't know if you'd have to argue. A lot of the J Jewish kings were pagan kings, right? Because they didn't worship God. But you've got Xerxes here, Ahasuerus, whatever you want to call him, whatever floats your boat, who is in power. He's inept. He doesn't know what's going on. I mean, he just, he's, he's in throne. But because of Haman, who is the enemy of the people of God, creates this edict. This, they're going to wipe out the Jews, right? And so because of that, he gives the authority over to Haman. But one is asked to intercede, right? So this one goes to the king in, in, in power, finds favor, and intercedes on behalf of another, uh, the whole nation, really. And what's another name for somebody who intercedes? A mediator. They stand in the gap, right? She stood in the gap for not only herself, but also for Mordecai. You see, and then what happens to Haman as a result of all this? He's hung on the gallows, which is eventually going to be a cross. Now think about this for a moment. Because the truth is, is that you and I fit much more in this boat than we do this boat. Because we were too once enemies of God. And we deserved to hang on that cross. But somebody came in and mediated before the Father on our behalf and died the death that we deserved. These gallows were the precursor to the cross that the Romans loved. 
But not only for themselves, for their benefit. Did Jesus benefit by dying on the cross? Absolutely he did, because now we are in right relationship with him. But for all the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, is the hand of God upon this? Absolutely, guys. The pictures that you see, like, I mean, you could, you could take this a step further and look at the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. What happens in the New Covenant? We're set free from all the persecution of the death and the sickness and all of that. Why? Because Jesus stood in the gap. I mean, you could take this a dozen different directions. The bottom line is this. If Esther had not fulfilled and stood there and said, you know what? I'll give up my life if I have to, but I will approach the king. This story never happens. And the truth is, is you take it back further in history. Had Saul done what he was supposed to do, this never happens. But God knew. He knew from the very beginning. I get asked all the time, if God knew we were going to screw up, then why did he make us in the first place? Because he knew he was going to have to die. He knew there's going to be thousands of years of death and destruction and people are evil. And because of their evil and their sin, sickness and death entered in the world. And if that's the case, why? I mean, if it's me, pull the plug, new plan, right? Probably you too. I wouldn't have done that. But why did he do that? But Jesus makes a profound statement. I think it's in the book of John. Don't quote me on this. It's in the Gospels. He says, there is no greater love than one who lays down his life for his friend. In other words, the ultimate expression of love, which God is love, is when one is willing to lay down their life on behalf of another. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He took our punishment. And to this day, he stands next to the Father and mediates on our behalf. And because of that, we find favor in the sight of God that we can enter boldly into the throne room of grace and approach Him because we don't have a high priest who cannot empathize with our, our troubles and our, 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 our temptations because He too was tempted in every way. The difference between He and I is that He got it right and I daily get it wrong. But thank God that He sent His Son into this earth and laid down His life on our behalf that he continues to mediate for us today because I don't know about you, but I need it. God's good, amen? You guys see the power of Scripture. This thing is, is so powerful, so beyond what we give it credit for. We just read it and we walk away. We put in our time, we get our 20 verses, we do whatever we do, but we don't study it, we don't just take it in. We don't allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures to us to see the things that maybe are hidden. Remember Esther's name, something hidden. There's all sorts of things that we could go in and, and, and derail this. Something about called macro codes and micro codes and, and equidescent letter sequences. Well, then that a fun word. But if you get into Hebrew and you start going a straight number, you know, like I'll say eight, every eighth letter, you see the name Yahweh, you see the name Yeshua, you see the name, uh, I can't remember, there's a bunch more about God and things like that in the Hebrew language. You can't do that on accident, folks. It's way beyond that. God's good, amen?